if you were here in this room exactly three years ago, July 2017, uh, you may recall that during that month, I preached four sermons on the Old Testament book of Ruth. And uh, I don't know about you, but things have really changed in my life since that time. Uh, for example, at that time, I was still living with my dad in Arlington, and I was just newly engaged to a girl named Natalie Bergstrom, if you remember her. <laughs> Sounds weird to some people who don't know her. Um, and I had been at Cedar Home just for one year. Uh, but now, three years later, I'm no longer living with my dad, uh, but with my wife and son here in Stanwood. And uh, um, I, I've been married to Natalie McFadden for two and a half years. And, that's right. And uh, this month, we're celebrating both my fourth year at Cedar Home and the first birthday of our son, Ezra. He's turning one on the 29th. Yeah, which is absolutely crazy. And I wanna to return to the book of Ruth this morning because I'm convinced that it will speak to us in a different way this morning than it did three years ago. And here's why. Though God's word never changes, we are constantly changing, right? And things and circumstances and relationships in our lives are constantly changing. And as a result, when we read particular passages of scripture throughout our lives, they tend to speak to us and apply to our lives in different ways. I mean, just, just think about how a passage on marriage, for example, would speak to us and apply to our lives before and then after being married. Or maybe a passage on parenting before and then after having kids. Or maybe a passage on grief before and then after losing a loved one. Because we are always changing and things in our lives are always changing, God's living and active word is constantly speaking and applying to our lives in fresh ways. And so we're gonna look at the book of Ruth once again, which is a wonderful story all about God's providence the doctrine of God's providence, which I'm defining as his sovereign orchestration. So I'm thinking of God as a kind of divine conductor, his sovereign orchestration of all things according to his purpose and plan for his people's good and for his own glory. Let me say that one more time. God's providence is his sovereign orchestration of all things according to his purpose and plan for his people's good, and for his own glory. And as we'll see this morning through the book of Ruth, God's providence is a thing both marvelous and mysterious. But before we look at the book, let me pray for us and for our time here together this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would cause your word to speak to us this morning in a fresh way, and we ask that you would cause its truths to take root deep in our hearts, that we might be changed and bear good fruit for your glory alone. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn in it to the book of Ruth.
It is uh, sandwiched right in between the books of Judges and 1 Samuel, the book of Ruth. And last time we looked at Ruth, we spent four weeks going over it, you know, meticulously, verse by verse. Um, But this morning we're gonna be looking at the book from more of a bird's eye view with just some selected verses um, so that we can get the whole story in one shot, basically. We wanna see it all at once, okay? So the book begins in chapter one, verse one, saying that all this took place in the days when the judges ruled. And if you know anything about the days when the judges ruled, you know that this opening line immediately casts a dark, dark shadow onto the story. In fact, if you have your Bible open to Ruth, turn back a page or two to the book of Judges and take a look at what the very last verse of the book says. It says, chapter 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. And as a result, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it doesn't take much of an imagination to understand how chaotic and corrupt things can become in a society where there is no righteous rule and where people just do whatever is right in their own eyes. When this happens, you get things like Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, right? And so you see that the book of Ruth takes place during a very dark and tumultuous time in Israel's history. And things get even worse, continuing on in verses one and two. There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So there's something ironic here, and that is that there was a famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which means house of bread. So the house of bread ran out of bread. And why? Well, I think the sovereign providential God who sends the rain to bring harvest and who shuts up the sky to bring famine. I think the sovereign providential God sent the famine upon the land, probably so that the people might recognize the spiritual starvation they were suffering from rebelliously and lawlessly living by bread alone and not by every life-giving word that comes from the mouth of God, if you know what I mean. And something else that's ironic here is that this man, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, he flees with his family from the presence of God, the king, to a place where there was even greater spiritual starvation, Moab. So evidently, Elimelech missed what God was trying to tell his people through the famine, and instead of repenting and returning to God, like Jonah, he fled, he and his family. And things get even worse, verse three. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. Naomi becomes widowed in Moab, and it gets even worse, verses four and five. These two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there in Moab about 10 years, and then both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 
Have you ever been in a situation in your life where things just seem to get worse and worse and worse and instead of light at the end of the tunnel, all you can see is just unending darkness? That's the place Naomi is in right now. And if I had to guess, I'd think that she probably just wanted to die herself because her life had been almost entirely consumed by darkness, all within just the first five verses of the story. But in the midst of this suffocating darkness, a small sliver of light appears as Naomi gets word in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in Israel with food. And as a result, she decides to return to Bethlehem but urges Orpah and Ruth to remain in Moab where they might be able to find new husbands and move on with their lives. And we see their responses to her request in verses 14 through 17. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. And she, Naomi, said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried May the Lord do so to me as he has done to you and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Wow, what an amazing response. While Orpah does the sensible thing and decides to remain in Moab, Ruth clings to Naomi saying, your God is the God I wanna follow too. And why, why would she do this? How could she do this after seeing Naomi suffering? Well, I think part of it was Ruth's love for Naomi, obviously. And I think another part of it was, you know, just the impact her husband's death had on her life, leaving her essentially abandoned. But it also seems that at some point, Ruth must have been brought to faith in God. And we, when we consider that Naomi was returning to Bethlehem after having fled from the presence of God, and that Ruth was following her with a newfound desire to know and follow God, but that Orpah was returning to Moab and to her Moabite gods, it says in verse 15. We see that this return was just as theological as it was geographical in both cases, right? It was either a turning toward or a turning away from God. And so in faith, Naomi and Ruth set out for Bethlehem. And then we read verses 19b through 21a. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which in the Hebrew means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now we have to understand that 
In this ancient culture, so much of a woman's identity was wrapped up in her having children, and particularly male children who'd be able to continue the family line and the family name. And so when Naomi says that the Lord has brought her back empty, I once was full, but the Lord has brought me back empty, it seems, and I think the last chapter of the book will reinforce this, it seems that more than anything, she's lamenting her childlessness and her inability to bear more children, that seems to lay at the heart, at the root of Naomi's bitter emptiness. But the last verse of the chapter ends on somewhat of a higher note saying, verse 22b, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So the famine is over Barley is ready to be harvested and we're left wondering what's going to happen. What is God going to do? Because surely he's up to something. He always is. Amen? He always is. Amen? And then the next thing we read is this, chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And then immediately, we're told that Ruth went out to glean in the barley fields. And to understand what gleaning was, there was a law in ancient Israel which said that uh, when landowners were reaping the harvest of their crops, they were to leave the very edges of their crop fields unharvested so that the widow, the orphan, the poor, uh, the foreigner, all the less fortunate in society could come into their fields and glean, gather the unharvested leftovers for themselves so that they could survive. This was a way that God, in his kindness, gave through his people to those who were in need. So Ruth, being both you know, a foreigner and a widow and probably quite poor as well, she goes out to glean in the barley fields and then the author writes this in verse 3b. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And here, the author is being intentionally sarcastic. He's playing with us a bit because of course, nothing just so happens to come to pass. And this whole story is about God's providence, his sovereign orchestration of all things according to his purpose and plan for his people's good and for his own glory. And then the author continues to play with us a bit, saying, verse 4a, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And in the Hebrew, this word behold, uh, it's written in the form of a sudden exclamation of surprise. So the author is uh, essentially saying, and wouldn't you know it? Would you look at that? Boaz just so happened to show up as well. And so you see that the author is intentionally and creatively building up our anticipation for something to happen between Ruth and this man, Boaz. And then the narrative continues and we learn that Boaz is a compassionate and godly man who invites Ruth to glean as much as she would like from his field and uh, to even drink from his own water vessels whenever she's thirsty, and to even eat from his own table whenever she's hungry, or at least at mealtime. I mean, in every way, we see Boaz going out of his way to kindly and graciously bless Ruth. 
And at the end of a long work day, Ruth returns home to Naomi with an ephah of barley. An ephah. Why aren't you guys freaking out? <laughs> you don't know that an ephah is around 40 pounds of barley. 40 pounds. She returns home with 40 pounds of barley. And Naomi asks her, verse 19, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And what a shock it must have been to Naomi to discover that in God's providence, the man with whom Ruth worked was her own relative, Boaz. And then Naomi excitedly tells Ruth in verse 20b, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And a redeemer, or goel in the Hebrew, was a relative in a family who, according to Israelite law, would literally buy back his relatives if they had sold themselves into slavery because they were unable to pay off a debt that they owed. But not just that, under certain circumstances, uh, according to not Israelite law, but a cultural custom which was similar to something called leveret marriage. You don't have to remember that, but under certain circumstances, the goel would also marry a childless widow in the family, which was also a form of redemption. And in the next chapter, it becomes clear that Naomi had this cultural custom in mind when she told Ruth that Boaz was one of their kinsmen redeemers, family redeemers. And so with that in mind, we come to chapter three, where Naomi cooks up a plan. Verses one through five. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Now, all this immediately strikes me as a pretty bad idea, right? Because it sounds like Naomi is telling Ruth to go seduce Boaz. And this leaves us wondering, and quite uncomfortably, what's gonna happen? How is Boaz gonna react? Will this godly man compromise morally? Did this story just take another dark turn? And then in the following verses, we see Ruth carry out Naomi's plan, and as we would expect, Boaz is absolutely startled out of his sleep, but before he can react, Ruth goes off script, and instead of waiting for Boaz to tell her what to do, as Naomi had instructed her, she blurts out, verse 9b, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And here, Ruth isn't asking for a big bear hug or to get under the covers, or anything like that. She's actually asking him to marry her 
And we know this is the case because to spread one's wings over a person was a Hebrew idiom which meant to marry. And Boaz tenderly responds to Ruth's plea by blessing her in the name of the Lord and by calling her a woman of worth. And then he says in verses 12 and 13, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So evidently there was a relative nearer to the family than Boaz, uh, someone more eligible to perform this cultural custom of the redeemer for Ruth. But Boaz is gonna get this all sorted out and if this other guy won't redeem Ruth, he will. He swears on it. And then chapter four opens with Boaz going up to the city gate and talking with this other redeemer who ultimately decides not to redeem Ruth, which frees up Boaz to do it, which he does. Verse 13a, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And then the story fast forwards a bit and we're told that Boaz and Ruth give birth to a son. And at this point in the story, when we think about all that Ruth had gone through in, in losing her husband in Moab and in leaving behind the only life she had ever known to follow Naomi and in going out to glean in some stranger's barley field, having no idea what the future would hold for her, if anything at all, at this point in the story, we feel this sense as readers that something like a great light has dawned to banish all the darkness. Like the new morning sun rising after a long night or spring finally arriving after a harsh winter. And if the story had ended right here, it would have been a great story. But it doesn't end right here. And the reason it doesn't end right here is because this story, which is called the book of Ruth, isn't primarily about Ruth. Let's keep reading and take notice of who doesn't show up for the rest of the story, verse 14 through 17a. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Did you catch that? Boaz is Ruth's redeemer, but their child is said to be Naomi's redeemer. And here's why. If we remember back to chapter one, where Naomi had lost her husband and her two sons and returned to Bethlehem saying, the Lord has brought me back empty as there was now no uh, offspring or ability for her family line and family name to continue. Well, here was the interesting thing about redemption. Uh, 
when a kinsman redeemer married a childless widow in the family, any offspring born out of that union was essentially given the last name of the woman's first husband and was considered his heir. And so this child born to Boaz and Ruth was actually considered an heir in the line of Elimelech. That's how redemption worked. And this child would continue his family line and family name. And this would bring fullness to Naomi's emptiness and joy to Naomi's bitterness and restoration of life to Naomi's aching and aging bones after all she had experienced was just death and death and death again. And if the story had ended right here, it would have been a great story. But it doesn't end right here. And the reason it doesn't end right here is because this story points us even beyond Naomi. Verse 17b, they named him the child Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The same David that killed Goliath with a stone in a sling as a young boy. The same David who penned over 70 of the Psalms. The same David who became the greatest king of Israel. And so, as we come to the end of the book of Ruth, we see that Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, they were all characters in a much bigger story. A story about the events that led to the birth of David, king of Israel. And if we know the rest of the story, we know that even the story of David was part of a much bigger story because through the line of David would come the Messiah, another child born in Bethlehem another fullness filler, another joy bringer, another life restorer, another redeemer, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the divine and sovereign author of life and creation and history who would write himself into his own story, this cosmic redemption story. And so as we come to the end of the book of Ruth, which is just, it's just one little redemption story, one subplot, if you will, of billions in this cosmic redemption story, we're able to look back and see that in the providence of God, were it not for the famine in Bethlehem, Elimelech never would have moved his family to Moab. And were it not for Elimelech's moving his family to Moab, his sons never would have met Ruth and Orpah. And were it not for Elimelech's sons meeting Ruth and Orpah, their deaths never would have made any impact on Ruth's life. And were it not for the impact their deaths made on Ruth's life, she never would have returned to Bethlehem with Naomi. And were it not for Ruth's return to Bethlehem with Naomi, she never would have just so happened to meet Boaz. And were it not for Ruth's just so happening to meet Boaz, she never would have married him and given birth to Obed, the grandfather of David in the line of Christ. And so we see that this seemingly insignificant subplot was critical, 
critical to Christ's cosmic redemption story. And we see that it's even through our sin and suffering and surprise that God is sovereignly orchestrating all things according to his purpose and plan for his people's good and for his own glory. This is the amazing doctrine of God's providence. It is both marvelous and mysterious. And we see no clearer picture of its marvel and mystery than at the cross, where Jesus, the Son of God, was put to death through the sinful actions of men in order to providentially save sinners from their sin, which leads to death. And I'm here to tell you this morning that whatever your story is, no matter how insignificant or inexplicably dark or pointless or hopeless it may feel at times, you need to know that it is critical. It is critical to Christ's cosmic redemption story. I mean, have you ever thought about why you were born into this time period and not another? And on this side of the globe, if you were, and not another? And into your family and not another family? And with your unique characteristics and not others? The reason is because your life and everything about it is not an accident. That you exist here now as you and not someone else is not an accident. And your home, your job, your family, your hobbies, your interests, your personality, none of it is an accident. And the things that have happened in your life are not accidents. And the sins God has allowed you to commit are not accidents. And the things you have suffered are not accidents. And the things you have been surprised by are not accidents. And the blessings you have and enjoy are not accidents. And your salvation, Christian, is not an accident. And your being here this morning is not an accident. And whatever you do when you leave here this morning will not be an accident. And if I see you back here next week, it will not be an accident because there are no accidents when the sovereign providential God is in the driver's seat orchestrating all things according to his infallible purpose and plan which he has predetermined, Ephesians chapter one tells us, from before the foundation of the world. Whatever your story is, it matters more than you know. And God is intimately involved in every detail of it more than you know. And one day you may cry tears of joy in heaven when you discover just how critical it was to Christ's cosmic redemption story.
But until eternity, God's providence leaves us with much mystery. However, the book of Ruth effectively pulls back the curtain, revealing to us at least three ways that we can recognize God's providence in our lives now. The first is in those things in life that bring us to a spiritual crossroads. In those things in life that bring us to a spiritual crossroads, a point where we have to choose which road to take, either toward God or away from God. For Elimelech and his family, the first thing that brought them to a spiritual crossroads was the famine in Bethlehem, which unfortunately led them not to repent and return to God, but to flee from the presence of God in the promised land. And we do the exact same thing when some hardship or suffering comes into our life and instead of running into the arms of God, we run away from God. Things don't turn out the way we had expected and we become bitter. Or we get hurt by someone and we seek vengeance. Or we find ourselves in need and we start stealing. Or we get lonely and we turn to pornography. Or we get depressed and we turn to alcohol. Or we become fearful and we escape into fantasy. Or we experience some kind of loss in our lives and we immediately go out trying to fill that thing with all the wrong things or people, right? Thinking there is life elsewhere, thinking there is satisfaction elsewhere, thinking there is hope elsewhere, we run away from God into the arms of someone or something else. And any of us who've lived long enough know that Every place we run to other than the arms of God is a mirage in the desert. A mirage in the desert, promising more than it can deliver, but ultimately delivering more than we bargained for, like despair and dissatisfaction and even death. And we know this, and yet, we still seem to forget it over and over and over. But God in his grace does not allow us to remain in Moab forever, but continually, providentially brings us to these spiritual crossroads where we can repent and return to Bethlehem, the abundant life that is in his presence where we are greeted not by shame or condemnation, but by love, like the prodigal son who was embraced by his father and whose return was celebrated with a feast. And I'll just be really honest with you guys and tell you that uh, though I began the sermon by sharing a bunch of really positive changes that have happened in my life over the last three years. Uh, the truth is that not all of the changes in my life have been positive. Um, and particularly over the last few months, I've been tempted often to bitterness as I've been 
suffering from an autoimmune disease I was recently diagnosed with. And over and over again, when I feel this ugly bitterness beginning to creep into my heart, over and over again, I'm brought to this spiritual crossroads where I have to choose to either let that bitterness consume me or give it to God and trust God and then thank God for not just giving me over to those feelings of bitterness, but for providing a better road. A road that I can take only because Christ has already come and paved the way when he came for me and died there in Moab, in my place, so that I might have life in Bethlehem. And so my prayer is that when we, as a church body, come to a spiritual crossroads in our life, that we'd remember that God in his gracious providence has led us there. And that we'd remember that it's only because of Jesus that we even have a road back to Bethlehem. And that we'd take that road by the Holy Spirit's power. Even when the way is narrow, even when the way is hard, knowing that there is abundant life there in his presence. Okay, and the second way the book of Ruth reveals to us how we can recognize the providence of God in our lives is in the kindness of others toward us. In the kindness of others toward us. Uh, if you think about Ruth, so much of the kindness of God that she experienced was actually through the kindness of Boaz, right? I mean, just, just think about it. As Boaz welcomed Ruth to Bethlehem, God was welcoming Ruth to Bethlehem. And as Boaz told Ruth that she could glean as much as she'd like from his field, God was providing food for Ruth. And as Boaz told Ruth that she could drink from his own water vessels whenever she's thirsty, God was quenching Ruth's thirst. And when Boaz took Ruth under his wings, redeeming her by marrying her, taking her to be his wife, you bet that it was God who was redeeming Ruth because God was sovereignly orchestrating all of it. And behind this godly man was God himself. And this is a part of what makes God's providence marvelous. That he often blesses others by making us to be the blessing. Isn't that amazing? Because he could just do it himself, but he often does it through us. And so my prayer for us, especially as a church family, is that, is that we would see the smile of God through one another's smiles and that we would feel the touch of God through one another's touch, and that we would hear the voice of God through one another's encouragement, and so on and so forth. My prayer is that in every way, we would see behind the godly men and women in, and children in this congregation to God himself. And that when we do, we'd let those people know so that they might be encouraged too hey, I just want you to know that when you welcomed me so warmly, I felt as if God himself was welcoming me. God used you to make me feel welcome here. 
hey, I just want you to know that when you put your hand on my shoulder to comfort me, I felt the comfort of God through you. God used you to comfort me. Hey, I just want you to know that when you spoke God's word over me, I heard the Holy Spirit speaking through you. God used you to speak to me. I can't think of a much better way to encourage and build up one another other than to tell them when we see, when we see God actively working in them and through them. Amen? And lastly, the third way the book of Ruth reveals to us how we can recognize the providence of God in our lives is probably the most obvious way and a way that we've already touched on a bit. It's in the unfolding of history. In the unfolding of history. In other words, sometimes it's only in hindsight. It's only as we look back into the past and at how history has unfolded that we're able to see how God was providentially at work, right? I mean, think about Naomi. It wasn't until the birth of Obed that she clearly saw how God was providentially at work through all of those dark providences that she experienced. And even then, she must have gone to the grave with some unanswered questions because she never got to see in this life all the things that God had purposed to do through the line of Boaz, which led to King David, which led to Christ, and which has led to us today, who are talking about her story, who've been saved by Christ, and which will lead to many more after us who shall be saved by God's grace until the end of time. And so I think this leaves us with a couple clear applications. Uh, number one, we can look back into the past, trusting that we will see some of the ways God has been at work in our lives. And this is something that I'd encourage all of you guys to do this morning. Think back over just the last three years since we last look at the, looked at the book of Ruth and take note of the ways that God has providentially been at work in your life and in the lives of each other. And then, think back over the last decade. See how God has been at work. And then, think back to the events that led to your own birth. And then think back further and further and further to the cross. And then think back even further than that into the Old Testament. And remember, read the stories of all the events that led to the coming of Christ and marvel at God's providence, which has been worked out in your life. We can look back into the past, trusting that we will see some of the ways God has been at work in our lives. And number two, we can look forward into the future in hope, trusting that God will continue to be at work in our lives. And trusting that there are some things that we may never come to understand on this side of heaven and that that's okay. In his wisdom, God has concealed some things from us for now. We can look forward into the future though in hope, trusting that God will continue to be at work in our lives. And in closing, uh, I just want to share a brief story that I shared with you in the very first sermon I preached on the book of Ruth. It's uh, the story of the missionary Robert Germain Thomas. 
Some of you may know this story. Maybe some of you are hearing this for the first time. But Robert Germain Thomas was a Welsh missionary in the mid-1800s. And while he was serving as a missionary in China, a burden began to grow on him for the people of Korea. And at this time, in the mid-1800s, Korea was not welcoming to foreigners, and they closed their borders. But Robert knew that God was calling him to bring the gospel to Korea. And in 1866, Robert boarded a ship that sailed for Korea. And coming upon shore, he leapt out of the ship, carrying his Chinese Bible in his hand, and was quickly met by attackers and was brutally murdered. And it's reported that his final words was him just shouting, Jesus, 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 to these people who would ultimately take his life. It was a dark time and a dark providence. But what ended up happening is that that Chinese Bible was taken by a local Korean man and used as wallpaper in his home. And soon, people began coming from all around to read the words on those walls. And then very shortly after that, a small congregation was formed in that house because people were being saved, trusting in Jesus for the first time. And then only 15 years later, over 100 churches had popped up because the gospel had spread like wildfire throughout Korea all because of the seed that was sown upon their shores by the blood and Bible of Robert Germain Thomas. And if in the marvelous and mysterious providence of God, even a senseless murder like Robert's can be redeemed for a glorious purpose, what tragedy, what suffering what evil, what sin in our lives can't God redeem and won't God redeem for his glory, amen? So may the book of Ruth exhort us all today in the words of the hymnist William Cooper, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Amen. Will you guys stand with me to pray? Let me pray. Oh Lord, make our hearts to know and to believe these truths, especially now in this moment as we face so much uncertainty as a nation and as many of us are facing various hardships and, and stresses and losses from COVID and the shutdown, the quarantine, Lord. And Lord, I'm sure that many people here this morning have come heavy laden, feeling beat down, feeling confused, feeling afraid perhaps. And Lord, I just ask that you would tenderly embrace each and every one of them, taking them under your wings, 
and that you would give them a glimpse of your bright and smiling face behind their dark and frowning providences. Lord Jesus, we exalt you as our redeemer this morning and we ask that by the Holy Spirit's power you would be continually redeeming us from the ways we find ourselves back in Moab. Lord, grant us repentance and bring us back home to Bethlehem where the thirsty may drink without price from the river which makes glad the city of God and where you, the bread of life, abundantly give of yourself. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this word from, your, from the Bible and from Ruth, Lord. Amen. All right. May we all go in the grace of God this morning.